friends, welcome to Live Boldly with Sarah Shulton Kranz, a survivor, thriver, adventurer, and believer in all things possible. My mission is to guide others to live their life boldly, regardless of circumstances. I believe we all have the power to overcome and lead joy-filled, happy lives. Recorded from the trail or in my office, I share inspiring stories from everyday people because we all deserve to be heard. You will also hear from handpicked professionals ready to guide you beside me. Are you ready? Let's do this. I am thrilled to have Florence Williams on my podcast today, a day after the release of my book, walk through this, harness the healing power of nature and travel the road to forgiveness. I intentionally released this episode on November 11th because so much of the scientific research that I really dove into within my book, I learned from Florence Williams. She is the author of The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative. I would suggest you grab your journal, your pen, take this outside, listen to it. That is the place to be when you are learning so much. Um, This conversation is about nature healing, nature therapy. We talk about how nature affects our brain and our body. We talk meditation. It's so good. Florence Williams is a journalist, author, and podcaster. She is a contributing editor at Outside Magazine and a freelance writer for the New York Times, New York Times Magazine, National Geographic, The New York Review of Books, Slate, Mother Jones, and numerous other publications. She is also the writer and host of two Grazi award-winning Audible original series, Breasts Unbound and The Three-Day Effect, as well as Outside Magazine's Double X Factor podcast. Please go into her website, florencewilliams.com, follow her on social media, Instagram, and Facebook. Within her website itself, you will find resources for you to listen to, to read, to learn from, to deep dive into, highly suggest that you go there. All of that will be in the show notes for you as well. Before we move on, I would like to say that we do have two Grand Canyon retreats coming up. As I'm recording this, I'm not sure if they are filled up yet. However, they are three months of deep dive coaching into self, along with a five night, six day retreat down into the Grand Canyon. One is over Christmas, Christmas Eve and Christmas actually, December 22nd through the 27th, and another uh, is in January, January 14th to the 19th. If this sounds like something that you would be interested in, please reach out to me as soon as possible. You can email me, sarah at sarahsholtoncrams.com. You can ping me through any of the social media sites. Um, And also, if you'd like, go ahead and sign up for a discovery call uh, and we will sit down together on a one-on-one. It's free and we'll decide if this is the right fit for you. These are really amazing ways to transform your life, especially going from 2020 into 2021. Along with that, please follow along. Uh, go ahead and subscribe into my newsletter, sarahsholtoncrans.com, because we have a lot coming up into 2021, things that we're rele- releasing, um, such as, believe it or not, you ready for this, jewelry. We have um, different things within a clothing line that we're looking at, and also a 12-month program called The Trail, a community for truth, inspiration, hope, and healing. It is online. We are going to be releasing that mid-November, so you can go on up and sign sign up for it. It's really gonna be an amazing online virtual program for you. I will be guiding you along with guest experts every month. It's deep dive coaching into transforming your life, overcoming the things that have held you back and really creating a life that you love. So with that, let's listen to Florence and all that she has to share, because this is amazing. 
Florence, it is wonderful to have you here. Um, I am so excited about having you for multiple reasons. And um, first of all, you're like a soul sister to me, which is really funny. I have been following you for, gosh, like two and a half, three years, about three years now. And what's interesting is when I was going through my trauma recovery and everybody kept asking me, as you know, like, how, why are you healing so fast? What's going on? And then I had Stacy Greason, as I was writing my book proposal, she sent me, she said, you have to go get this book and it's called The Nature Fix. And that's how I was actually introduced to you. So I grabbed your book and I said, I don't know if you know this, I was walking down the street, walking my dog, and I'm literally like in the street, sitting here highlighting stuff that totally resonated with me and made me realize, oh, this is why you're healing so fast. But wow. I didn't, yeah, I didn't have the science to it. You know, and so it just made, it brought so much clarity, so much more clarity into my life as to, oh, I get it. Like, this is why in all of your life traumas that you've lived through, you, you, you're just like, you're healing. So right. I want to thank you for that. Thank you for writing this book. It's helped me immensely. And I know it's going to help others as well. But I want to start with, how did you get into this? How did you get into, how did you, how did you get into this? How did you get into writing about this? Well, first, let me just say that, Sarah, I, I feel like a soul sister to you also. And I, I love hearing your story. Um, it's, it's wonderful. And it's great to be here with you. So thank you so much for having me on. Um, I got into this because, you know, really for personal reasons. I mean, I'm, I'm a journalist. I've been a science journalist for a long time. But um, as a magazine writer and a book writer, I kind of have the luxury of following my own curiosity. Uh, and it's usually driven <laughs> by things going on in my own life that I'm curious about. So with this particular topic, uh, you know, I, I had spent 20 years living in the Rocky Mountains as an adult. So I had the sort of, you know, hourly access to nature. You know, I had these incredible mountains outside of my back door. Most recently, I lived in Boulder. But before that, I was in Montana for 10 years. Uh, I was in the mountains, like literally every day, you know, for a little bit of the day. And, and I had window views, you know, the rest of the time. Um, I could smell the smells of, of the mountains. Um, and then my family moved to Washington, D.C., sort of against my better judgment. Um, we moved for a job. And it, I, I just felt like in my own brain, you know, sort of a stress bomb exploded, um, it was totally different. I had this very different kind of psychology. I had a different emotional landscape. And I, I started to really wonder about how our external landscapes get reflected, you know, in our internal landscapes. Um, and, and I became really interested in the science. You know, why? Why do I feel so anxious? Why do I feel so stressed out? You know, what am I missing? Is nature deficit disorder a real thing? You know, and what does the science have to say about it? So that term, nature deficit disorder, was actually coined by journalist Richard Louvre in 2006. So it was a long time ago. And I was wondering, you know, what had progressed sort of in the research since then. And in fact, there's a ton of stuff. Yeah. Well, and so go into it. I just really want to dive into you, like just dive in because a lot of my listeners have experienced trauma brain. And what's fascinating about this is that my number one most downloaded podcast was about trauma brain. Mm -hmm. And right. Isn't that interesting? Because I think so many times people I know for myself, when I was traumatized and sitting in there in PTSD, it's the ruminating thoughts and the stories in your head and the brain just right. keeps going and you can't right. get out of the loop. Right. And so I want you to just dive in, give it to us. Well, 
You know, I mean, anxiety and depression are so incredibly common right now. Uh, you know, I mean, they are anyway in the United States, you know, in, in modern times. But but during this pandemic era, I mean, they've just increased like 25% feelings of loneliness, feelings of isolation, depression. Um, and so I think it just becomes more important than ever to think about what's going on and how, how we get better. Um, you know, and, and certainly rumination is a really big part of it. You know, as someone who studies trauma, you know that and depression. Um, one of the studies that I became really interested in in this book was a brain study. Um, out of Stanford University um, by a researcher named Greg Bratman. And um, he was interested in one part of the brain called the subgenual prefrontal cortex. Uh, and it's a part of the brain associated with rumination and also then therefore with depression. We know there's a link. Uh, and so what he did was he sent a group of people to walk for 90 minutes in a city park a pretty city park because it's Palo Alto. So there's like the Stanford dish there, you know, it's pretty, but it's not, it's not by any stretch of, you know, a wilderness area. It's just a nice park. And then he sent another group to walk around um, downtown, sort of El Camino Real, pretty busy street. He imaged their brains before and after the 90 minute walk. And he also gave them some questionnaires. And what he found was really, really interesting. He found that that subgenual prefrontal cortex, that part of the brain, um, stayed the same before and after the walk in the city walkers. But in the nature walkers, it deactivated. So there was less blood flow going to that rumination box and you know, presumably more blood flow going to other parts of the brain, right? And that's an interesting question, sort of where is that blood flow going? Um, but in the questionnaires, the nature walkers also said, you know what, by the end of my walk, I was not having so many negative thoughts. I was listening to the birds, you know, and I was kind of spacing out and I was enjoying myself, you know, and my mood lifted. You know, all these things we sort of know intuitively happens to us when we're outside. Um, he could really see in this brain scan. And I thought that was super interesting. And that may be one of the reasons, you know, why um, some countries like Finland are recommending that people spend a certain amount of time per week in nature. Uh, and it's because they think they can actually de prevent depression. Right. I mean, it's, well, and it, I know for my own self that it helped immensely, obviously, you know, just sitting there for me, it was like being on the ocean, being with the dolphins, but not just watching the dolphins, but actually being with them. Right. And actually like participating in what they were doing looking exactly. at them, right? And that's the difference. I, th I think that that's actually the difference that I've noticed with people too, is my friends that just go and climb a peak just to mark, mark it off and say, oh, check, did it? It's you know, still about time camp. Right. Yeah. right, right. And so what happens to the brain then? If it, Where does the blood flow go? What happens within the brain? Yeah, so, so I mean, we don't really know. I mean, I think that the neuroscientists are still trying to figure that out, but, but as, as the activation kind of leaves the frontal cortex, which is where we do a lot of our thinking about ourselves and also sort of our tasks, you know, that we're so swamped with all the time. Um, it seems to go to parts of the brain that are associated maybe more with empathy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's fantastic. And then parts of the brain associated with creativity, you know, like let's put disparate thoughts together. Let's actually start thinking about, you know, how maybe our emotions and our experiences, um, 
you know, get sort of retold through different stories by connecting to other parts of our brains when we're outside. Um, so I'm, I'm really interested, as you know, in the science of awe. Yeah. And I talk a lot about this in my book. And because you mentioned the dolphins when you're out there in the water, you know, we know that these sort of um, interactions that we have with wildlife um, is a, is kind of a direct shortcut to feeling awe, right? We know that little kids feel this all the time, yeah. you know, when they see a butterfly or, you know, even a squirrel or something, I think adults have a little more trouble accessing it, but, you know, certainly you're on the right track when you're going for the charismatic megafauna. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But even when, you know, when you make contact with the dog, your dogs, right? It's, there's this wonderful, like feeling of oxytocin, but there's also a little bit of awe. And when we experience awe, according to science, we feel like we are connected, right, to something larger than ourselves. So that feeling of sort of humility, where our ego becomes a little bit less important for that period of time, is so important for our emotional state and our psychology, right? So it gives us perspective, right? Um, it, it makes us feel like our problems are not maybe the most important things in the world. It reminds us, um, you know, that that we can be engaged with other things. And so it not only helps us feel more a part of, you know, nature, but it actually, according to the nature, I mean, according to the science, it makes us feel like we're more connected to each other, too, which is really cool. So in studies, you know, when we when when people in a lab, for example, you know, look at pictures of a waterfall or a whale, you know, reaching in the ocean. Um, as opposed to looking at photos of a shopping mall <laughs> or freeway, um, we will give away more lottery tickets. We'll give away, you know, more charitable donations in, in sort of psychology games that you play in the lab after you look at those photos. We'll play better on teams. Um, we'll be less sort of selfish and greedy <laughs> in, in the way that we play these games. So I think that's really underappreciated, you know, and at a time like this, when we're in this kind of collective trauma, um, it's more important than ever to feel like we're part of, you know, a community that we're not in it alone, that we are there to help each other. You know, it's not just about our safety. It's about your safety and your grandmother's safety. We need to feel that sense of collectivity. Yeah. So we need nature to do it. Well, we do. And it's, that's so beautiful that you, that you bring this up because I know for myself too, that when I'm on the trail, the place that I connect most deeply with other humans is, is like in nature, you know, that's, that's it. That's where we are. I mean, I could tell you so many stories of what we call, you know, tramily. Do you ever hear that term before? Trail family? Oh, that's cute. Yeah. I love that. Tramily. I love the tramily. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm going to tell you, I have met so many tramilies out there because regardless, I mean, even when I was on the trail for the 22 days, what's fascinating is I met so many people. There were 12 of us that ended up becoming a tramily. That's what we called ourselves. And it was so cool because we sat together. I'll never forget it in the hot springs with the, under the full moon. And we were just sitting there looking at each other saying, you know, if you put us all together, if we met in the city, we would never have actually come together, right? But when you're out there, everything else goes to the wayside. You see yourself through the similarities and not the differences. And it's so bonding. It's so bonding, right? Because society, you don't have all of that other, th the, the, the things that are telling you who you technically, right? Like who you're connected to, because technically we're all connected, period. Right. 
Right. That and that feeling beautiful. of that bonding is also so important for coming out of depression, you know, for, for mental health reasons, for feelings of well-being. Um, well, and, and what's interesting is so many of us were there for mental health and, and our own emotional well-being. Um, so I want to get into as well, this topic of soft fascination, because it was really fascinating to me when I was sitting there reading this, because it's it for, especially for those of us who have experienced PTSD, right. Um, or when we're in like in it, one of the things that has always been a huge trigger for me are different sounds, different things that happen. It's just the bolt that comes through you and it, and it literally will hit through the entire body. Can we touch on that, please? Yes, I am fascinated by that. Uh, I, I Not for the book, The Nature Fix, but after I wrote The Nature Fix, I went on a three-day backpacking trip with women who had been sex trafficked mm. and were deep into recovery from that and from many, many years of trauma. Uh, and it was so interesting to me to sort of watch them um, sort of um, reconnect to their senses mm-hmm. and to parts of their body. And I, I talked to a lot of trauma therapists about this, um, especially those who work with women. It was very, very interesting. Um, you know, often in trauma, people dissociate, mm-hmm. right? So there's this, uh, and especially if it's been sexual trauma, you know, that, that you sort of cut yourself off from your senses and from your body, your brain and your body kind of dissociate. And what's so healing about being in nature is that the senses that start to wake up are not threatened. You know, what, what you perceive are, are not the sort of scary sounds like, you know, gunfire or a door slamming. Um, you know, what you hear are the gentle dawn birds, you know, you hear the rain, you hear the breeze coming through the trees, maybe the sound of a creek. Um, and you slowly start to sort of come back to life a little bit on a sensory level, on a somatic level, so that your body can start to reconnect with your brain. And that's critically important for taking care of yourself and taking care of your body, right? You have to sort of feel your body again. You have to feel ownership of it. Um, Nature can be a very gentle and comfortable place to start to sort of open up that window, um, you know, for healing and for learning and for rewriting your story. Uh, It it can provide comfort. And I think that that is sort of an under, again, an underappreciated part of nature. I think often when we think about, you know, adventure, um, therapy or something like that. It's, it's that climbing the peak. It's that pushing yourself, you know, it's this sort of, you know, be strong, be brave. Right. But actually when you are facing trauma, right, you're, you're already coming from a place of discomfort. You don't need more discomfort to push yourself. What you need is comfort, right? What you need is to feel safe. Um, and, and that's a place that you can get to when you're in, you know, a comfortable nature space. Right. I'm glad that you brought that up because having experienced a rape at 17 and then that was my space. I didn't go climb peaks back then. I mean, I did. It was also in the middle of the country where we didn't have peaks. But what I would do is go and like put my feet in the cornfields and just Mm -hmm. sit and focus on a tree. Um, And it's interesting that you're bringing this up because I do think that that goes back also to the two things that people always associate with, which is, am I supposed to go climb a peak to go do this? Or how do I get nature into my life? 
And I want you to dive a little bit into that with us. How much do people need? How do people do this process quote, which I always, the whole do word, how do they be in this process of nature? I think that, you know, what you're asking is the dose question, which I think is really interesting. Um, I think it's still, uh, you know, being figured out. I also think there's a ton of individual variation. You know, there there are times in our life, right, when we just need it more uh, and times when we need it less. But I I look to some of the science uh, from Finland and from the UK, which specifically asks that dose question. Um, So in Finland, they ended up recommending health officials, they recommend five hours a month minimum. So that translates to like 30 or 40 minutes twice a week. Mm -hmm. Um, They found that if you could get five months minimum time in nature, you could really prevent depression. Now the UK actually came up with a slightly larger figure um, maybe because the UK is more stressed out, like they have Brexit, <laughs> right? They, they're dealing with a lot. This is all, of course, pre, pre-COVID. Um, and they came up with two hours a week. Mm. The peop- and, they, and what they did was, it was really interesting. I mean, they, they looked at like thousands and thousands and thousands of people. So very large data set. And then they mapped, I guess, where they live and also asked them um, how much nature they got. And so uh, the people who got less than two hours a week were just not as happy and not as healthy as the people who got two hours a week. But interestingly, the people who got a lot more than two hours a week also did not have huge boosts, you know, in well-being. So there was something about the sweet spot of two hours a week, uh, if you're British. (laughs) And let's just also, I want to, I want, people ask me this all the time is what is nature? Like, let's get down to the bottom of it. Like, what is nature? And I do want to dive a little bit into that as well, because li- literally, do you get asked that question? I get asked that question all the yes. time. And, and in fact, I was asking myself that question because I was such a nature snob when I moved to Washington. You know, I had lived in Boulder, right? So I thought nature is like a trail on a peak. There's not a lot of other people, um, you know, and an incredible view and an incredible starscape and an incredible sunset. You know, it was, it was kind of like dramatic and fantastic and alpine and rugged and wild. And then when I got to DC, I was like, oh, God, this sucks. Where's the mountain? Right. Um, and, and it was really through the course of writing this book <laughs> that I learned how to appreciate a much more generous definition of nature. You know, and again, if you ask a kid, what is right. nature? Right. The kid will say, oh, you know, my sidewalk is nature because I saw a caterpillar there, you know, and the sky is nature because I saw this really cool cloud. Um, I heard a bird. So that tree is nature. And if you ask an adult what nature is, often they will say, oh, it's a national park. You know, it's Yosemite. It's this or that. Um, And I think we have a lot to learn from these kids. So, I mean, for me, learning about the senses, right, and how to sort of tap into them more in a very um, kind of intentional way, you know, how to ask myself, you know, what am I hearing? What am I feeling? What am I smelling? I'm going to close my eyes so I can turn on my olfactory sense. You know, I do these little exercises now that really put me in the present moment that, that make me find and appreciate the beauty that's around me, even though it's definitely not as spectacular or as dramatic as the Colorado mountains. Um, but, but boy, you can really, really turn on your sense of beauty, even in city nature. 
Um, and in fact, you know, now when we're all sort of locked down and not really able to roam around the country the way maybe we would like to, um, this skill set has become incredibly, incredibly important for my own mental health. And I'm just trying to share it as much as possible. Yeah. It's interesting you say that because when I was writing my book <laughs> during COVID, literally from the fight, I started it in the fires of um, Australia. How wild is that? Which was last wow. December. That was only last December. And wow. as I was writing it, for some reason, I was being really pulled to start with that childlike sense within us. And I had no idea. I don't know if it, how was, if it was with you in writing a book, this book, but I was completely funneled. Like I was, it was, it was coming through me and I don't know why I was pulled to start with that childlike sense. And then as I continued the book and just kept writing it, I was like, well, duh, of course that makes sense because everything starts with us as a child. And if we can okay. tap back into that childlike sense, we see things very differently. We view things differently. We don't have the same biases. We don't have that same societal, you know, um, outlook on how we're supposed to be viewing things because everybody right. all that external end. validation. Yeah. I mean, rats, it's, right. it's right. just wild. And so I'm glad that you brought that up because that also validates the fact that, yeah, that's, I mean, that's how I've always viewed it. Um, so I want to dive into a little bit more in what was some of the most fascinating research, because I'll tell you, for me, reading yours was the most fascinating research <laughs> when I went into my book, into what was happening in me. I was like, dang, girl knows her stuff. I mean, literally, <laughs> you should have seen me. I was in my robe. It was hilarious. Well, um, it, was, it was such a fun book to write because I did get to go all over the world, you know, and talk to different researchers and different practitioners. You know, I loved going to the healing forests of South Korea. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just the fact that they call them a healing forest there, I think really tells you a lot about how that culture approaches the nature human connection. Um, you know, I, in Japan, I did these forest bathing, um, you know, kind of experiences on what they call forest therapy trails. You know, again, it's this, it's, it's not the kind of language I can really see, you know, our, our government necessarily getting behind, you know, in our national parks and forests, but, um, but maybe we will, you know, I think there's increasing evidence just all the time um, that, 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 that these trails are critical for human health and well-being, not just for recreation, you know, not just for timber, um, not just for, you know, education and so on. So um, I loved going to those different cultures. I loved visiting the forest preschools and kindergartens in Scandinavia, you know, where these kids are just outside all day and they're climbing trees and they're building fires and they're using tools and you can just sort of see their brains like just light up, right? They're just such happy, engaged kids. That was really fun. Um, and of course, I loved the wilderness trips I did. Uh, I did a trip with veterans who have PTSD. Um, so, so powerful and so moving for me to see them, you know, kind of experience this transformation. Um, again, of like calming down their nervous systems and being able to open up their senses, being able to laugh, being able to sleep well, um, enjoying their food outside you know, building these connections with each other that they were able to maintain to some extent afterwards. Um, I just, I just really felt like, wow, this is such a powerful healing modality. Um, and yet we're not really talking about this enough. Well, I'm glad that we are right now. This is, this is, this is where it starts, right? I mean, it's in conversations. Can we talk a little bit about the PTSD with the veterans? 
Yeah. Reason for this, because I'm actually going on a podcast tomorrow and we're going to be having that same conversation. Um, Tell me a little bit more about that. What was the transformation that you saw within these veterans um, when they, knowing that they had come out of, well, were in such PTSD? Yeah. Well, um, I think, you know, often um, veterans after, uh, you know, after they've been in the war theater, um, they're, they come out of it with a sense of sort of hypervigilance, mm-hmm. right? There's, they're very much on edge. They're very anxious. So they have nightmares. Um, they, they need to kind of shut down their senses because they're too vigilant, right? Their nervous systems are overreactive. So if they hear a book drop, it sounds like gunfire. Um, and so they withdraw, you know, a lot of them have a hard time being in crowded spaces, right? They don't like being in public spaces. Some, some of them have a hard time leaving their homes. So this group, you know, I, I went on two veteran river trips, you know, they, they were so brave, you know, to get on a plane and leave their homes and come out, um, which shows you that they were already sort of, I think, partly open to healing and maybe ready for it. But um, just to sort of watch them come out of their shells, you know, to come out of that state of withdrawal a little bit uh, and, and let their nervous systems calm down. It was, you could just watch it happening. It was tremendous. I mean, by the end, they were like hugging trees. <laughs> they were I hugging each it. other. Hugging each other. Well, they I had the biggest smiles, you know, you just yeah. could imagine. Yeah. I think that that's also what's important to, to, to bring up as well is, um, there's two things I want to mention is that the connection that we then get with one another when we are in this right. place where we are outside of the four walls and we're also outside of our own head, right? right? The connection that we can then have with one another and see each other through that human lens is huge. Exactly. But then the other thing that I want to bring up is for those of you that are listening right now that have experienced relational and betrayal trauma. And yeah. I know in the research that a lot of the PTSD, a lot of what you're talking about is also what we experience coming out of relational betrayal trauma, right? right. It's the rumination. It's the, when we were talking about the book dropping and it's the same, it's, it's a different, yet a lot of what happens within us somatically is the same. And so- That's right, that's right. Well, and of course I'll just point out, I mean, a lot of veterans of course have also experienced military sexual trauma. Yeah. But I think that a lot of, there's a lot of overlap in symptoms. So anytime you feel unsafe, whether it's because of relationship betrayal or because you've been at war, um, you know, so a lot of the same things happen. So, um, you know, again, your, your, um, your sympathetic nervous system is just an overdrive, right? It feels threatened. And so your body's putting out more noradrenaline, more norepinephrine. Um, there's this cascade of, you know, stress hormones that is then increasing your rate of respiration. It's increasing your heart rate, um, making it more difficult to sleep. You know, you have these like wacky cortisol levels at night. You're, you're not in sort of a normal um, cortisol phase. Um, you're not digesting food so well. And of course, when you're in that state where you're trying to survive and you think you're threatened, um, you're not able to um, engage your sort of creative and your cognitive brains. So you're not able to do sort of the meaning making, right, from the trauma experience that is required for healing. Um, you're not able to sort of get that perspective of, oh, that was my story then, but my story now is different. What can I take from that story and how can it change how I think about myself? You know, these are really, really big conceptual questions that we need to be in a more comfortable place before we can really tackle. 
That's what was interesting about reading Bessel van der Kolk's. Have you read his? his I have. Yeah, I love his book. His book is so great. The Body Keeps the Score. If you guys have not read read it, please go read it. It's incredible. Between when I was reading his book and then was read your book afterwards, and I was like, this is really fascinating. Um, I will completely uh, admit the fact that I'm not a science person. I this is not you know this understanding science is very difficult for me sometimes, and I think it's because of all the trauma I've lived through. I am a complete creative hum- creative thinker, creative doer, creative beer, like that's my space. So what's fascinating is that all of my realizations in life with my marriage, my family, my business, everything came from when I was outdoors. Nice. Like I, my business was formed on the Pacific Ocean, by the way. <laughs> Which is so your really- brain was able to make those wild connections, oh. right? When you were outside. Oh, that's yes, everything. I mean, I... And what's fascinating for me is watching people when they're on their retreats, when I'm I'm guiding them and watching them go through their own process of transformation. And they're having these ideas of what their family can look like, or, oh my gosh, you know what? I am going to get divorced or, or, you know what? Like I'm rewriting my story in this way. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. And I mean, another thing that you do, you know, so well, and I think that you help people do is incorporate the movement, right? The physical movement and, and, Bessel van der Kolk talks about that, although he doesn't talk specifically about nature, but he talks about dance and he talks about yoga. Um, and of course, when you're outside, you tend to be active, right? And so, you know, the, the the bilateral motion of walking seems to really help change the brain, um, you know, it helps get you in a different brain state. Um, paddling, which is something I do, um, and, you know, you're in your, on your paddleboard a lot. Um, just being so physical is very, very healthy and grounding for the body um, and, and also seems to help regulate that nervous system response. It helps regulate the respiration, um, kind of provides, again, a sense of connection to your body yeah. that you tend to sort of lose sometimes when we're deep in trauma brain. Yeah. Can we touch on one other thing um, is meditation in nature? Yes. Yes. I love it when I start talking to you, are like, yeah, if you guys can only see her smile, it's so beautiful. Um, so I want to talk about that because it, when I started taking the whole meditating outside of the four walls and doing it when I was in nature, it also completely shifted. And I mean, mm-hmm. completely shifted. So where's my place now? Typically when I'm on my paddleboard, I will, it's, it's just the things that happen to me, right? The, the thoughts that come through. So I want to talk about meditating in nature, give it to us what, um, how the scientific part of it, but also do you do this? I'm assuming that you do. I do, but I will tell you, it's been a struggle. I mean, I am not a natural meditator and I'm not an expert in meditation. I I've read the science that it's really, really bloody good for us to do it. And so I try very hard. But I, like you, I find when I'm outside in nature, it just comes much more easily. And, you know, I mean, there's, there's sort of a strain of meditation that suggests we're supposed to really empty our brains, right? And, um, you know, try to sort of think of ourselves as like a drifting eyeball in outer space or whatever. <laughs> that, that never so much works for me. But when I'm, but, but, but then I, I have, I have a, a relative actually who's a, who's a Dharma teacher and a Buddhist. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, there's so many ways to meditate. You can right. meditate by, you know, the point is to be in the present moment. Like that's right. really the point and not to let your runaway thoughts, right, take off. And so if you, for example, imagine yourself in a giant amphitheater of sound 
And then, so you, so you really focus on hearing the water or hearing the birds or hearing the wind. And then imagine, I think this is so powerful. You imagine the space behind the sound, like what's behind the amphitheater. And you know, when you do that, your brain just kind of goes, whoa. Um, and it's very cool, you know? And so, so I think there are a lot of ways to be present and mindful. Um, and I think that nature just naturally facilitates it. Yeah, that's it's fascinating you bring this up because I really had a hard time meditating as well. Until and I would people would say to me, Well, just sit down and meditate. I'm like, in where? Like, what do I do? I don't know what to do. <laughs> like, tell me to turn it off. Right. Right. How do you turn your brain off and just be? And so when I started taking it outside, I would that's exactly what I would do. I would start focusing on the sounds of the birds. But that brings in the whole census too bring yeah. in your senses of who you are, right? And then being able to focus on that. And I will tell you that one of the things that uh, Brittany did a, a, collaborated with me on the meditations in my book, and she and I have had a lot of conversations about this of, it's okay if your mind wanders, it's right. okay if the thoughts come through, especially when you're traumatized, that type of thing happens. Um, and just allowing yourself to just be present and focus on your breath. That's a huge thing too. And I think also think just to sort of be aware that your brain is doing that. Yeah. You know, like watch your brain a little bit, which in and of itself gives you a sort of healthy perspective, you know, Oh yeah, there goes my thinking brain. There it is. Yeah. Um, so it, it sort of shows that you've got a little bit of, um, you know, self-awareness about it, which I think is a huge part of it too. Yeah. So how has doing this research affected your life? Mm. Um, boy, it's really changed it. It's changed the way I just live my day. You know, I, I very much have taken these lessons into a practical space where I go out all the time. Um, you know, I've been stuck at home like so many of us over these last many months. And I've also been working really, really hard on a, on a new writing project. Um, and I find that if I can just take like 20 minute walks, you know, I take them about three times a day. Um, I have a dog and she loves that too. Um, I don't necessarily have to go to like a beautiful place. I can, you know, walk for a few blocks around my house, but I really spend that time trying to notice beauty. So I'm looking at what the flowers are doing. I'm trying to find some birds and listen to them. What I do is I really try to actively engage my senses by grabbing handfuls of pine needles and other leaves. And I crumple them up and I smell them. Uh, you know, I have these, I'm part of like, the, I'm like the crazy lady who's like picking people's leaves off their shrubbery, you know? Trust me. <laughs> and I find that if I don't do that, I am definitely in a different headspace for the rest of the day. And I'm much more aware of it. I'm grumpier. I'm more restless. I don't sleep as well. So among my rituals also is that, you know, one of my walks really takes place at night. Mm -hmm. So I've been going down to watch the sunset and a lot of my neighbors go down there too. There's a place about five blocks from my house where you can actually see the sunset. It's a, it's a really cool community kind of bonding experience. Like when the same people come and we wave and we say hi and, um, and, and then I walk back and it's dark and I have noticed that I just sleep much better. You know, if I've been in the dark for 15 or 20 minutes, you know, our, our brains need that to release melatonin, right? We never do that. We never just sit in the dark for 20 minutes before we even try to go to sleep. 
Um, and so we're just in these natural lights, like way too long in our house. Um, and I, I also just love looking at the phases of the moon. You know, again, it's this little bit of connection to something other than me, sort of the larger cosmos out there that makes me feel a little smaller. Uh, it's a ritual that I've become extremely attached to. We really are soul sisters. <laughs> I, to like, I do that same thing. That is awesome. So cool. <laughs> and I think it's important to bring this up because for those people that think that you have to go climb a peak or you have to do something huge, no, just walk down, like walk five blocks and watch the sunset, exactly. get outside and watch the moon, watch the stars. It's so fascinating. And that's the awe that you're talking about as well. Totally. So I would like to ask you one more question before we have to um, get off of uh, this amazing call that I could stay on forever with you on. But um, so how has this shifted your family, your children? And the reason I ask this is because I know for my own self, my kids watch me and now they know, for example, when I also need to get outside and they will tell me, mom, go get on your paddleboard, mom, <laughs> or run, mom, get outside. Um, and it's helped them because it's given them this whole new way of therapy, quite frankly. Yeah, absolutely. That's a wonderful gift you've given them too, you know, that they, yeah. know, they now know how this works for you and they'll internalize it, you know, on some level for them when they're feeling stressed out. Yeah. I mean, mostly it's just made me a better person. You know, it's made me more patient. It's made me more generous. Um, I feel like I'm in a better headspace, you know, to, to be there for them and to be present for them, but they also come with me, you know, they see that it helps me. And, um, you know, my, my daughter's 17, she's kind of in, at an age where she, you know, sometimes wants nothing to do with me, but, Nevertheless, she will often come with me on my evening sunset walk with the dog. And um, my son is now in college, but when he was here this summer, you know, and we were all feeling sort of bored and restless and like, get us out of here. We would go, you know, just drive to a trailhead and have a picnic. I mean, we did this a couple of times a week. I treasure these times with them. And, and they also, I think just, um, you know, it just, it, they, they liked it too. I was like, yay. I'm kind of like, I've had them drink the Kool-Aid. I'm so happy. Yeah. That's the same thing with me. My kids went to the poppy fields for the first time with me and oh. that was really cool. And just, just cool. the breeze. And I was like, this is what I do. You guys, what's fascinating is they've actually said to me like, oh, so this is why you do this. And yeah, this is why I do this. Isn't it great? Nice. <laughs> So I want to thank you um, for everything that you have brought to this world because your research is huge and I just want to commend you and, and honor you and tell you thank you. It's it's helped a lot of people and which is huge. Thank you for no, being thank you so much. such a big part of what we all need. And back at you, Sarah. I'm very appreciative of all you do. Thank you. We will um, continue this, I'm sure, at another time down the road. <laughs> I hope so. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Sarah. Friends, thank you for listening to the Live Boldly podcast. I am grateful to have you here, and I would love to invite you over to sarahsholtoncrans.com to grab my free seven steps to a joy-filled life. I share these seven steps from my own heart, soul, and experience. These steps transformed my own life from victim to survivor. 
Also, please, let's all be a ripple effect of change in today's world. I ask of you to please share this podcast with others that may need to be inspired or who need to hear from others going through where they are right now. To grow this podcast, please leave an iTunes review, go to my Instagram or Facebook page, and let me know what you think. I love hearing from each and one of you. I love sharing your thoughts, messages, and inspiring words. Because we are not alone in this world, friends. Let's keep the ripple moving. It begins with each one of us. I love you and have a great remainder of your day. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.